Good morning. <clears throat> Our text today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you turn in your Bibles there with me, uh, we'll begin with verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death. To the one, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So, like Stephen said, I'm uh, preaching in a series. You've heard a number of other men um, preach through the first chapter and the first verses of chapter 2 of the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, But uh, I think it'll be helpful to kind of get you guys caught up about what's going on and what's happening at at this point in in the text. Um, Paul had intended to visit Corinth, and he told the Corinthians that he would do so. But then he didn't. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend a winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Paul, didn't, uh, Paul wanted to come to Corinth, and visit the Corinthians. He didn't want to just stop right through, stop on as he was passing through. He actually wanted to spend time with the Corinthians. Um, He loved them, and he wanted to serve them. He wanted to visit Corinth, and he told them that he would. He he reiterates his intention to visit them at the beginning of the second letter to the Corinthians. He writes in chapter 1, In this confidence I intended at first... To come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. It is surprising then that we find out in 2 Corinthians that Paul didn't visit the Corinthians when he told them that he would. Now you've had a number of sermons already dealing with the problems that came up because of that fact, that he didn't visit them when he said that he would. Namely, that the Corinthians assumed the very worst of Paul. They thought that he was double-minded and untrustworthy. But Paul explains why he didn't visit them. He says, But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. And then in the beginning of chapter 2 he says, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. And so now we come to today's passage, which reads, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, 
I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Having resolved not to go to Corinth again in sorrow, Paul was committed to finding out from Titus about the Corinthians before visiting them. So he goes to Macedonia. And it's not until 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that, that we hear of Paul finding Titus. He writes there, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So what's the timeline here? Paul wrote to the Corinthians telling them that he would visit. He arrives in Troas, but he cannot find Titus. Scripture records that Paul had a door open to him, meaning that he had a good opportunity to minister. However, he passes up the opportunity to minister, having determined not to visit them in sorrow again, having determined not to visit the Corinthians in sorrow again, He has no rest for his soul, and he moves on to Macedonia. He has trouble from every side in Macedonia, but Titus arrives and comforts Paul. And Titus provides to Paul the information that he had been missing. Titus told Paul how the Corinthians had responded well to his letter, and Paul rejoices at that. The Corinthians thought that Paul was double-minded and that he didn't actually care about them, but that was far from the truth. The truth is that they were constantly on Paul's mind and heart, and he passed up an opportunity to minister because he was eager to hear about the Corinthians. His reason for his actions was his tender care for the, for the Corinthians. Not knowing his intentions, they simply assumed the worst. Now, do you remember Joseph's sermon from a few weeks back? Joseph spoke specifically about this, and he exhorted us to trust our leaders, to trust the pastors and elders in this church. We ought to make their job a joy to them. We need to learn from the bad example of the Corinthians in this passage. It's easy to assume the worst of those in authority over you. Don't do it. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that every fact must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. It is foolish and sinful to believe a bad report about leaders simply because you heard it from some disgruntled former member. Now, you might think that Paul would be bitter about having to pass up an opportunity to minister. Remember, it says that he had an, an open, a door open to him for ministry, and he passed it up in, in hopes of learning more about the Corinthians in Macedonia. So while the Corinthians were assuming the worst about him, he was put out of his way because of his care for the Corinthians. Would I have been bitter? Would you have? Probably. We might have been bitter. <clears throat> but Paul doesn't respond bitterly at all about having to move on to move on to Macedonia instead he says 
But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul's response here is exactly the opposite, that of the Corinthians. They thought the worst of Paul when plans changed. He assumed the best. He assumed that God is good all the time. He believed that God would lead him in triumph in Christ no matter what the circumstances. Now, do you remember, if you were here then, uh, the service that Pastor Baker preached at? It was the Good Friday service. And he spoke to us about the triumphal procession. Paul, in this passage, when he speaks about uh, God leading us in triumph in Christ, is calling to mind the practice of the Roman army to have what was a military parade celebrating their military victories. They would parade into the city and celebrate their military victory. So what is the, the triumph that Paul is referring to here? Over whom is the triumph? What has been won? Here's an account of the victory that has been won from 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory that God that has been won is our freedom from the wrath and judgment of God. God is righteous and he promises to punish the evildoer. And if my use of evildoer makes you think that you're off the hook, you're wrong. That means me and that means you. We break God's holy law found in these scriptures continually and so come under the judgment of God. So how can we have victory? How can we have this victory? We have victory because Jesus Christ fulfills the law for us and makes us righteous before God. It's his death on the cross that gives us our victory. All those who call on the name of Jesus Christ are dressed with his righteousness. For a Christian, these are very sweet and precious promises. But I must warn you, there is no access to God apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot have victory apart from Jesus Christ. If you do not know Jesus Christ and you have not surrendered to Him as your Lord, then even now the judgment and wrath of God hangs over you. If you do not know Jesus, then I exhort you, please come talk to us after the service. I'll be available to talk with you if you'd like. Um, There will be an elder up here in the front who can talk to you about it. Please come. Jesus holds out the promise of fellowship with God to you. He does not hold out the promise of worldly riches and comfort. Now, it is very common for wolves disguised as preachers and pastors to make all kinds of false promises about what it means to become a Christian. 
these false preachers are very, very good at what they do. They hone in on your selfish desires, and they promise you every possible thing that your selfish heart could desire. Joel Osteen and Rob Bell are very different, but they have at least one thing in common. They promise that Jesus wants you to have your best life here and now. They are lying to you. These men are wolves, and Satan is using them to lead many souls to destruction. Now, we'll be getting to this in particular in a minute, but our passage today says, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. These two men, and I single these out because they're high profile, but these two men, Joel Osteen and Rob Bell, specifically teach Christians that you are doing something wrong if you are ever a stench of death to anyone. They actively try to avoid the conviction of sin when they speak about Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever seen Joel Osteen speak about sin? What does he say? The way he puts it, he says that people are missing the mark, and that, and that he sees his role is to encourage them to attain the best that they're missing, the best for themselves that they're missing. And how many of you have watched uh, the video that we've been showing in the Inquirer's class about the bullhorn guy? It's a Rob Bell video. The entire point of the video is to teach Christians that they must never be an offense to anyone. <clears throat> Paul said that God led him in triumph But the triumph that Paul speaks about has nothing to do with the triumph of these false preachers. Cast them aside and and look with me at the Scripture today to see what Paul is talking about and to follow Paul's example. If you know anything about Paul, you know that his life had no resemblance to the false preachers who promise uh, worldly gain. What about Paul's life was triumphant? Whipped, shipwrecked, stoned, Left for dead, he caused a stir wherever he went. His churches had terrible sin in them. They rebelled against him. There were factions and there was terrible sexual sin. And these were Paul's triumphs. No, Paul's triumph in Christ had nothing to do with these false preachers. Whatever he meant by, whatever he means by this triumph, it's not what those false preachers are are meaning. Now, There are many of you today here who are with me so far. You're thinking, yes, Paul's life was awful, and it's true. His triumph was spiritual. He was seated in the heavenlies, and that was good enough for him. But does the triumph that Paul speaks about have anything to do with our lives here and now? Is the promise of triumph only for the next life? Is it only a spiritual reality? No, it's not. In 1 John 5, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Our faith is the victory that has overcome the world. By faith, we believe that God, who began a good work in us, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we fight the daily battle against sin by faith. Our struggle against sin is evidence of faith, of our faith, not evidence to the contrary. Our home is in heaven, our treasure is in heaven, and so we strain to heaven. So if you're a Christian, these words should be an encouragement to you. These words of triumph are given to us to give us strength to fight. They aren't there to give us assurance that the fight is over. The higher the pitch of battle, the more evidence that we have overcome the world. Remember, Scripture always brings faith and practice together. On the one hand, we reject Joel Osteen and his triumphalism and his uh, looking to worldly gain. On the other hand, we reject spiritualizing these truths so that they have no application to us today. Faith and practice come together. Now back to 2 Corinthians. It says in our text, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Any Roman army streaming into a city, parading their strength in one of these uh, processions, would always be accompanied by by the smell of incense. So again, Paul is using the analogy of one of these military parades to illustrate his point. Paul and his fellow workers were a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Preachers and teachers and elders who lead in the church are to be a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. They are, in particular, called to be this fragrance of Jesus Christ. But let me assure you, the application of this passage comes to all Christians, to you and to me. And here's where the surgery must begin in particular for us. We've been browbeaten in this country to believe in this thing called separation of church and state. And what that meant when it was first written bears no resemblance to what it means today or how it is used today. Today, the phrase means that you are allowed to be a Christian and to manifest the fragrance of Jesus Christ only when you are in a room with other Christians, and preferably a room without windows and one small door. That's it, and that's all. And then, you know what happens? There is never a time when you only have Christians around you, and so we feel as if there's never a time when we are at liberty to open our mouths and speak about Jesus Christ. Now, this sermon isn't about the Constitution. Um, What I'm speaking to you about today is being a faithful 
follower of Jesus Christ. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we are called to be an aroma of Jesus Christ to God. The passage specifically says that we are to be a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Both of them. Both among those being saved and those who are perishing. So today, I want you to hear the word of the Holy God coming to you through the Apostle Paul. Are you a student at IU? Write papers like a Christian. Speak up in class as if you're a Christian. Are you a professor? Do you profess Jesus Christ in your workplace? Whatever your day job, remember that being in Christ is not a hat that you take on or off. And we must submit to the authorities over us, but we may not let the earthly authorities here silence our witness for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a coward, don't worry. I'm one too. I'm afraid to do this also, but we must encourage one another in this work. A young a man who encourages me is Lane Bowman. He does speak to his co-workers about Jesus Christ. He is a fragrance of Christ, not only here in this church when we're around him, but he's a fragrance at his workplace. He's a fragrance of Christ to God among those being saved and among those who are perishing. Another example that's very common that we've seen happen in this church um, is that there are many young women who come to Bloomington to study at IU only to have their plans changed drastically. They come here having been set free, quote-unquote, by feminism, and so they're planning a career and have no thought to marriage or, or motherhood. And when... their love for Jesus prompts them to be married, to embrace the godly femininity that's, that's shown to us in Scripture, they, they get married and they have children. And what happens with the relationship between these women and their families? Often they become a stench to their families. Is this the fragrance of that Paul is talking about here. Yes, it is. It is the fragrance to those of us who are watching these young women and and their husbands and their families. It is a sweet aroma to us. And to those who are perishing, it is the stench of death. Now, what happens when you are a fragrance to both those who are being saved and among those who are perishing? What kind of an aroma will you have We'd be much more comfortable to, ha- to emit no smell at all, wouldn't we? But that's not what the text says. It says, to the one an aroma of death to death, to the one an aroma from life to life. 
<clears throat> what is the aroma of death? We have death removed from us, um, and it's put somewhere else where we don't see it. We don't have to deal with it in our culture today. And so we don't know what the aroma of death is like. Um, <clears throat> the aroma of death is roadkill. That's about the closest we get to it, is seeing a dead deer on the side of the road. And sometimes it is pretty gross. I think no, none of us stop and ever get out and look at it and smell it, because we know better, better than to do that, right? But that is this kind of smell that we're talking about. <clears throat> the aroma of death. Now, if, if we're talking, you know, Paul says to the one an aroma of death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. And if, since I'm, we're in a university community, uh, perhaps I should do a little contextualization here. Um, what Paul is really trying to do with using this metaphor of fragrance uh, is that smells are really on a on a kind of a continuum you never have a smell that's just all by itself you know it's not just a distinct smell it's usually mixed with other things sort of like like gender being on a continuum right um you kind of they all get mixed together and and uh and so what paul is really saying here is that there are many expressions of of what it means to be a christian and you know, the smell of one kind of Christian is different than the smell of another kind of Christian. And um, he's really making room for all the kinds of expressions there are of, of what it means to be a Christian. And, and that there are lots of different kinds of reactions to uh, a faithful witness of, of Jesus Christ. Is that, is that what he's saying? No, it's not. That's not what Scripture says. This is not on a broad continuum here, and it's not like sex, <laughs> male or female. Scripture says here, to the one an aroma of death to death, to the one an aroma from life to life. There are only two responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will either embrace Jesus Christ and the life that he offers, or you're, you will turn away in disgust. You will either praise God for the way that he leads us through Jesus Christ in a triumphal procession, or you'll turn away in disgust. Now, if this sermon happens to be a stench to you, you may try to pin it on me. That's what happens immediately, right? This is what we say. This is where we go right away. You may say that I'm just a jerk, and you might be a Christian, hearing this sermon, and the way that you would say it is uh, that the messenger has gotten in the way of the message. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily call me a jerk, but you'd make sure that um, you'd be stating the fact that somehow I am getting in the way of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ by this message. But, that, but that's simply not the case. Now, it may be true that I'm a jerk, and it may be true that the messenger at some point in the future that you hear from is a jerk. But this is not about me. 
This is about a holy God speaking to us here and now. Look at the text. In it, it says, to the one an aroma from death to, of death to death to the one an aroma of life to life. Whatever you do, you may not use the excuse. <clears throat> Don't use the excuse that I have gotten in the way. On the last day, when we are all judged and the secrets of all our hearts are revealed, you will not be able to say that you refused to come to Jesus Christ because Lucas Weeks was a jerk. Come to Jesus Christ and deal with the God that has given us these words. Now the Holy Spirit knows our hearts and he knew that the first thing that we would do is to blame the messenger. And so we end today with a sober warning um, to the messengers and also um, a declaration from Paul. It says in verses 16 and 17, And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul did not peddle the word of God. He was speaking the truth to the Corinthians. And the truth is that a faithful Christian will be either the stench of death to the perishing or the aroma of life to those who will live. Now, what does it mean to peddle? A peddler is someone who goes door to door selling worthless little trinkets for a quick buck. He won't say anything offensive because, after all, his goal is to come away from the door with a few extra dollars in his pocket. He's smarmy, and he tries to get you to befriend him, or he tries to befriend you right away. Is this what Paul has been doing? No, it's not. His life testified to the fact that he did not peddle the Word of God. But what about us? Do we peddle the Word of God? This applies to you, as you are a witness to Jesus Christ um, in your workplace and among non-Christians. But it has special application to those who are called to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preachers, to pastors and elders, to missionaries. It's easy to pick out Trinity Broadcasting Network because they barely hide the fact that they want your money, right? But what about your pastors? What about the students in this pastor's college? Part of your work, you may not have known this when, when the pastor's college started, but you have work involved in this too, you know. Part of your work is to examine the men and ask yourself, are these men going to peddle the Word of God? Those of us who work in the ministry, whether you work in a church or some parachurch organization, do you peddle the Word of God? 
It's very easy to peddle the Word of God. There, there's no end to the money involved in Christianity and Christian things today in this country. And my dad um, has often, you know, in talking about these kinds of things, speaks about how in Africa one of the easiest ways to make, make money is to put a little sign out in front of some room saying that there's a church service here and uh, stand up in front and say a few things and start passing the, the plate around and make a little money. Now, how can you tell if a man is peddling the Word of God? How can you tell if you are peddling the Word of God? Well, we just talked about a way to find out. If you are never a stench to those who are perishing, then there's a good chance that you are peddling the Word of God. You are telling people what they want to hear rather than warning them about the wrath to come. So, today and this week in your workplace, are you going to be a, a fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ both to the perishing and to those who are living in your school place? When you go to school, to north or to south, are you going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to your teachers, to your classmates? Let's pray.